Attention, your attention please. The following podcast contains spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, then do not continue listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Brothers Grimmer. I'm Bert. And I'm Frank. And today you're joining us for the second half of our Canadian double feature. Black Christmas from 1974. Fran, why don't you give us a summary of the movie? Uh, sure. I'm delighted to. So this is Black Christmas. It's directed by Bob Clark. It's an hour and 38 minutes. The story begins at night on a snowy college campus a couple of days before Christmas. A deranged killer, whose face we do not see, creeps into a sorority house by climbing up a two-story trellis and then crawling into a cluttered, dusty attic. All of the sorority sisters and their assorted boyfriends are having a noisy Christmas party on the first floor so they don't hear the break-in. Using a trap door, the lunatic quietly enters the house mother's empty bedroom and uses her private line to call the main house phone. The sorority sisters are accustomed to receiving obscene phone calls, and they think that this is one of their regulars. When one of them challenges and provokes the lunatic on the line, he abruptly tells the girls that he's going to kill them and hangs up. One by one, he quietly murders each of the girls, and the house mother, and a surveillance cop, and a local teenage girl, until only one girl remains, our final girl, Jess. I'm going to question one of those things. Do you think he killed the local girl? It's uncertain because the murder happens off-screen, but it wouldn't be the only off-screen murder that he's responsible for. So I'm going to say that I think yes. It is no coincidence that there is a murdered girl in the woods near the sorority house. Otherwise, it's an incredibly wild coincidence. What do you think? I'm trying to remember the Bob Clark audio commentary, and I think he implied it wasn't him. Hmm. That it was a separate murderer. Our murderer in Black Christmas murders college-age girls and the older den mother or house mother. Are there any young girls? Like This is a 13-year-old murdered in the park that we're talking about. He also kills a middle-aged detective who's sitting in a car outside the house. So he doesn't discriminate. He is plowing through a list of victims. So maybe we'll do some research and come back to this point and see who's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, artistic intent is one thing, but... At the end of the day, I think it would be way too many coincidences. Though, you know, you bring up an interesting point that a lot of the movie hinges on a very frustrating sense of bad timing. I don't think that our killer is a genius. I don't think that he's planned a lot of this out. There's just the sense that he's able to get these kills in just because the moments are opportune. Yes, nothing indicates that he's like a... Mastermind, smart killer. No. The first girl that he kills on screen is extremely unpopular, so her disappearance goes unnoticed for a period of time. And then it's poorly timed that Jess, our final girl's boyfriend, is having emotional unraveling, and he becomes a perfect red herring. And then when Margot Kidder's character, Barb, gets stabbed to death... The loudest child Christmas choir in the universe shows up in front of the sorority house so that nobody hears her screaming in agony as she gets stabbed to death with uh, her glass menagerie. Or you could argue that the killer could hear the kids. There could be an argument that he saw that as an opportunity to have Margot Kidder's screams covered up by the choir. Right, but you couldn't argue that he trained the children and invited them to sing at that moment. It's possible. (laughs) (laughs) Those lousy kids are in on it. (laughs) 
So I had seen this movie on TV. I, did we see it together when we were kids? This movie is pretty famous. This movie was sort of like the holy grail of horror movies. It was difficult to find, but it kept on getting mentioned in lots of zines and genre publications like Starlog and Cinefantastique. And when I finally got a hold of a DVD of it in 2001, I was really surprised to realize I had watched it with you <laughs> when I was seven years old. <laughs> you think you were seven when you saw it? So how did you figure that out? I actually looked up the date of the broadcast on NBC. It was NBC Saturday Night at the Movies. It was 1978. I'm a terrible brother. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's been established. (laughs) I think we loved it. And it was a very heavily edited version of the movie that was broadcast. Certain things need to be clearly edited from a television broadcast, like the dialogue on the phone. There's a... The killer makes prank phone calls, but there's no real... There's no explicit gore in action. Right. And in fact, when at one point two bodies are revealed, the characters played by Margot Kidder and Andrea Martin, and they are not terrifying looking in terms of blood or, or scars or anything like that. And in fact, I, looking at it now, I thought it looked very fake. The blood they use is bright red paint. Right. And they're both pop-eyed and scared looking. And not even that scared looking. Not even that scared looking. So actually that moment, which could have been terrifying, for me was kind of a letdown. Here you see two of the main characters that you've gotten used to throughout the movie. There's not that many girls that you get close to. And here you find two of them dead. And it didn't have the impact I expected. Uh, Right now it didn't, but I guarantee you that when I was seven, it ruined me. (laughs) It ruined you. Well, we wouldn't have today's podcast if it... (laughs) We wouldn't have the Brothers Grimmer podcast if you hadn't been ruined at seven years old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ho, 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 shit. Santa, please. It's, it's funny, I, I remember one of the reasons that we really liked it was there was a scene that, again, had to be heavily edited where Phil's boyfriend is playing Santa Claus and Margot Kidder is at the, lo- they're at the local orphanage giving out presents and spending time with these kids and the guy playing Santa Claus is cursing like crazy in front of the kids saying, shit, fuck. With the kid on his lap, actually. Bitch. Isn't Santa naughty? Oh, ho, ho, fuck. With a kid on his lap. It's ADR work. They obviously overdubbed it after the fact. The kids are laughing, and Margot Kidder is getting one of the little kids drunk, giving the kid alcohol. I think the little bugger snockered, son of a bitch. And we thought that was hilarious. No, I don't remember what they dubbed in place of the profanities, but we thought that was hilarious. We probably laughed very easily then. And also... <laughs> It was taboo. It's all, it was. It might have been nervous laughter too. Well, yeah. It was. It, it, the whole movie was taboo. There was something very transgressive about having a horror movie set at Christmas time. It was fairly rare. What was the subsequent horror movies? I remember there were boycotts for subsequent Christmas movies. Do you remember which ones those were? Well, the big franchise was the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise that started in 1984. That's right. And I think I remember people protested that movie. Absolutely. They definitely picketed it, which only added to the publicity. And it was basically a marketing agency's dream. The public outcry against it made them way more money than they would have had normally. You've made it through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas. Silent night. Deadly night. Uh, there was another Christmas-themed horror movie that came out that year that I loved that was very high-profile, Gremlins. And loving parents who were about to give him... You're going to like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're going to have to open it now. It won't wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Steven Spielberg's Gremlins, that was a Joe Dante film. Yeah. It was set at Christmas time and was the first film in that little mini two-movie franchise was definitely a horror movie. 
I think that's why I have a hard time with Gremlins. It's not my favorite movie, in part because I think the tone is so not cohesive. Uh, and sometimes that works where you have elements of humor and elements of horror combined in a movie, which we do in this one. There's definitely comic relief with the sorority house mother who's a drunk and has <laughs> bottles hidden inside books and by the toilet. And you have the very incompetent police officer who's every time he shows up on screen is basically a gag. Yeah. In addition to the horror and certain moments of tremendous suspense, but there I think the for me the mix works. Whereas in Gremlins, where it, there are definitely there's tons of funny moments, the horror mov- the moments don't work as well for me. I loved it. I love Gremlins. I thought it was a roller coaster ride because I never knew whether they were going to play things for laugh or play things seriously. Like the school teacher who is experimenting on one of the gremlins and gets horrifically killed. Uh, that was a shock. Okay. Hello? I feel like we should do something a little bit different with this one because this is a slasher movie and we've got a big cast of characters. So I I think we should quickly run down through the characters and actors that were in the film. We don't usually do that, but this is a a high body count. There's seven victims in this movie and I think it might be worth mentioning them. Okay. Our final girl I'm going to mention first is Jess who is played by Olivia Hussey, a great British actress who was famous for doing Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet before this. Uh, Olivia Hussey is a sister in a sorority house. I'm pregnant. What? I'm pregnant. (laughs) Jess, that's fantastic. I don't want it. You don't want it? No. I want to have an abortion. You can't make a decision like that. You haven't even asked me. Jess, who's our heroine, is very different from most final girls. She is definitely not a virgin. She's pregnant. She's, in fact, knocked up. And she's very willful and doesn't listen to authority and is kind of obstinate, but it makes her very brave. But that's where you could consider her a typical final girl. She definitely is courageous. Even though she wants to have an abortion, she isn't painted as an immoral person. Not at all. Just as someone who this pregnancy is not at the right time in her life. And she's very sympathetic. Oh, yeah. So she has a lot of the characteristics of the final girl. And the other sisters include Andrea Martin, Who plays Phyllis. Who later uh, went on to, uh, is it SCTV? SCTV, yeah, absolutely. Because this is a Canadian film. We're back in Toronto again. And I would love watching her on SCTV. She was great. She had great, great comic timing. And then became a Broadway star. Yes, yes, indeed. She was also great in the Hedwig and the Angry Inch film. Which I haven't seen. Oh, it's great. And she's great in it. Barb, you're drunk. Go to bed. Phyllis, who is sort of the resident duff sorority sister, <laughs> as a boyfriend who looks like Gene Shalit. Surprisingly, she, Andrea Martin, who has such great comic timing that we've seen on SCTV, doesn't have a lot of comedic lines in this movie. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> No, Claire is dead. I can just feel it. Come on now, Phil. We don't know that. (laughs) Poor Mr. Harrison. I feel so sorry for him. Hey, hey. I actually feel like she has a wider range than most of the other actors. She is the person who puts Margot Kidder's character in place when she is drunk. She falls apart when she is convinced that their sorority sister has been killed after the teenage girl is found. 
she gets a wide range of moments. And she plays them believably, but, it's, uh, but the, her comic timing isn't utilized to its best effect in this movie. No. The funniest sister is Barb, played by Margot Kidder, who is sort of a rich, spoiled, lush, who just got stood up by her mother for Christmas vacation. You're a real gold-plated whore, mother. See you next week. And she says a lot of mordantly witty things, like, you're a real gold-plated whore, mother. (laughs) And to Claire... I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Oh, listen, this guy's minor league in the city. I get two of those a day. Maybe. But you know, that town girl was raped a couple of weeks ago. Darling, you can't rape a townie. You really are too much, Barb. Oh, come on, this is a sorority house, not a convent. She kind of gets things going by challenging the obscene phone caller at the beginning of the movie. One might have predicted that she'd be the first person killed if this was the formulaic slasher movies that came afterwards where cursing women who were sexually active would be punished by the slasher. And that's not the case. In this movie, the first girl who's killed, who we'll we'll describe in a second, is actually one of the mousy proper girls. So even though this is such an important movie in terms of creating a, a lot of the classic elements of slasher movies that would be used later, it doesn't have that uh, moralistic, punishing attitude that slasher movies took on in the 80s. I agree. I like the characters in this movie a lot. I'm not wanting them to get killed. And that's where, honestly, the tension builds. They're not super rich, well-developed characters, but we get to know them and we fear for them. We're definitely not on the side of the killer. This isn't like a Friday the 13th headcount of disposable victims. Come on, Claire, she didn't mean anything. No, really, Jess, it's okay. I have to finish packing anyway. Hasn't she had enough trouble fitting in here without you getting at her all the time? Come on, I know a professional version when I see one. Our first victim is Claire, who's played by Lynn Griffin, who is the demure, virginal good girl. And she is absolutely the first to die. She is followed by Mrs. Mack, who's played by Marion Waldman. In my memory, I'd always remembered her as being Shelley Winters. I don't know why, but I'd replaced the actress with Shelley Winters. She's the house mother. She's a tacky old lush who has bottles of booze hidden in the most ridiculous places throughout the sorority house. It's interesting you mentioned that because John Saxon, who plays the... Lieutenant Fuller. At the police department... In his audio commentary, he thought the same thing, that this, that this character is very Shelley Winters-y. It's worth mentioning that he is horror movie royalty and a B-action movie king. I'll always remember him for playing Heather Langenkamp's dad in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Of course. In three installments of that franchise. The three good installments. Then we finally get to the boyfriends, who are played by two actors. The first one, Chris, who is Claire's boyfriend, is played by Art Hindle, who we enjoyed so much in The Brood. So this could be both a Canadian double feature and an Art Hindle double feature. (laughs) It could be, except he's in it for very little. (laughs) Though he makes an impression. I think it's part of the lack of cachet that Claire has that she's dating a local townie. But I love the fact that he wears this voluminous raccoon coat. Oh, it's, it's great. He looks like a male college student out of the 1920s. For listeners who aren't familiar, there was a popular jazz age fad of wearing uh, raccoon coats. It was a quick and easy signifier of uh, collegiate enthusiasm. And he's this friendly local jock that plays hockey. For all the Canadians watching, it would probably, he'd probably be the hero. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Our second boyfriend is Olivia Hussey's boyfriend, Jess's boyfriend, Peter, played by Kier DeLea. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it, but someone said it's Kier DeLea Gone Tomorrow. 
<laughs> that's that's a perfect uh, <laughs> homophonic uh, reminder. <laughs> Care delay gone tomorrow. <laughs> he is this very handsome actor that I think most people would recognize as being the surviving astronaut from Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Here is much younger, and he's playing this tortured artist boyfriend. A pianist. A pianist, yes, who is a red herring with limp, greasy Peter Frampton hair. And throughout the film, he, he grows increasingly unhinged at the prospect of Jess's abortion, of her intent to have an abortion. I do want to talk about Kier DeLay's audio track. Oh, I've not listened to it. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> you know, I mentioned offhand that there were extras on that uh, digital copy that I sent you, but you didn't have to listen to them. I listened to only a little bit of the directors, and I turned it off. This is my first real audio commentary that I've really paid attention to, and I found it so interesting. Kier DeLay, who's so handsome in 2001 in Space Odyssey, and I always wondered, why haven't we seen more of him? For anyone who has that same question, listening to the audio track will explain it. (laughs) He is boring, conceited, unimaginative, and has nothing to say. In fact, the audio commentary for the people who watch this with the iTunes extras says it's John Saxon and Keir DeLay, and I was listening to it, and... It felt like I was halfway through the movie and Kier DeLay hadn't come in yet. And it turns out he only commented on the scenes he was in. <laughs> and started off his commentary by saying, I really don't remember anything about this movie. To, to be fair, I mean, he's an elderly man at this point. No, but here's the point. So the same commentary track is both John Saxon and Kier DeLay's commentaries both taped separately. And John Saxon, who is on the film shoot far fewer days than Keir DeLay, pays attention, has something to say, enjoys the movie. So basically you're, you're listening to him enjoy this movie as if it's the first time you've seen it. And starts off remembering small things like how well-prepared the director was. And Keir DeLay has nothing to say. <laughs> Except to wonder out loud, I wonder if Art Hindle's still a jerk. Because he was. Oh, my God. So not only nothing... So add say. petty to the list of, uh, <laughs> of adjectives for Keir DeLay. God, we hate him. We hate him, yes. We hate him, and we hate his character in the movie. Absolutely. I can't imagine why Olivia Hussey betted him. Clearly, she regretted it. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the kills. There are seven of them. The first one, Claire, is killed with a plastic dry-cleaning garment bag. She is suffocated to death. That image is what haunted me ever since I saw this movie. So if you were seven, I was, how old, 13? Yeah. Yeah. The image of Claire's body with the garment bag wrapped around her head? Correct. In a rocking chair. After surprising her in her bedroom as she's packing to go home for Christmas, the killer jumps out of the closet with the garment bag. She never sees the killer and suffocates her and then drags her body upstairs into the attic and places her in a rocking chair with a old creepy baby doll in her lap. And for the entire movie, she's just staring dead-eyed and no one notices that she is right there at the window of the attic. Terrifying. Terrifying stuff. And what a great actress. She actually pulled off that dead-eyed stare. I don't know how many takes she must have done with a plastic bag over her head, but there are lots of shots of her. And apparently, according to the director, just held her breath. That's how she did it. That's spectacular and, I think, unethical. (laughs) The second kill is Miss Mac, the uh, house mother, and she gets a giant hook that's on a pulley thrown at her head, and it stabs her face and neck, and she dies... Very painfully. It looks like it's painful, yes. Again, we see mostly the aftermath. We see her legs dangling from the attic trapdoor. The third death is Barb, played by Margot Kidder. She really has a fabulous wardrobe. She's dressed like in all the disco chic clothing. She's got one of those flattened pimp hats. 
fur coat, a choker. She's just dressed to the nines like she's going to go to Studio 54. She is sleeping off a drunken rant that she has earlier at dinner, and the killer sneaks into her room and stabs her to death with a giant glass unicorn, which is offset by children singing Christmas carols. So in the last two kills, you mentioned the den mother and Barb. Cinematically, there's two great transitions. I think you're right. All these murders that you're describing, Fran, have great editing transitions. There's a scene where the mother of the teenager who's killed in the park is about to see the the corpse. It's confirmed that her daughter was, in fact, murdered, and she's walking to the scene where she's going to realize that, and she's about to open her mouth and scream. The next shot is not her scream, but the telephone ringing. And the director keeps doing things like that where it just keeps things interesting. Yeah. It's not formulaic. No, it's not at all. And it's funny because this movie gets imitated so much afterwards. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's a real groundbreaker. But I don't think the copycats were as well-constructed as, as this one. I would agree. And we'll talk a little bit more about the slashers that followed this. So we have three murders that take place off screen. There is a police officer who is on surveillance in front of the sorority house. He's there basically just trying to keep an eye out because they've been getting the obscene phone calls and they've complained to the phone company and to the cops. That police officer's throat gets slashed at some point off screen. Then we have Phyllis, who goes in to check on Barb in her bedroom. We see her reacting to the killer who's hiding behind the door of the bedroom but then the bedroom door closes and we don't see her get killed. Barb, are you awake? That is one of the most suspenseful moments because at that moment that Phyllis vanishes behind that door the cops figure out that the phone calls are coming from inside the house, that the killer is calling from the den mother's private line in her bedroom, and he's simply calling the main house phone. The police call Jess and tell her... Uh, Miss Bradford, uh, this is Sergeant Nash. Are you the only one in the house? No. Phil and Bob are upstairs asleep. Why? All right. Now, I want you to do exactly what I tell you without asking any questions, okay? No questions. Now, just put the phone back on the hook, walk to the front door, and leave the house. What's wrong? Please, Miss Bradford, please just do as I tell you. Okay. I'll get Phil and Bob. No, no, no! Don't do that, Jess! But she is so insistent that both Barb and Phyllis are sleeping upstairs and she needs to get them that they have to tell her on the line. Yes, the caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Jess! Jess, get up! Her anguished reaction, calling to both Barb and Phil up the stairs, is fantastic. It is great. To be honest, I think it's the best argument for that kill being off screen of Phyllis. Uh, Ultimately, I don't care that the reveal is not that scary looking of her covered in red paint and everything. 
but the quiet that falls on the house, it's just the crackling of the fireplace and her screaming and not wanting to believe that both of her friends are dead upstairs and that the killer's in the house with them. I think this whole movie pivots around this... You're right, that the, the murders themselves are not the climactic scenes. I think that line, the killer's calling from inside the house or he's calling from inside the house, is what this whole movie is centered around. Yeah, that, that revolves around your favorite campfire story, which is the babysitter and the man upstairs. You read my mind. So when I was, if you saw this movie when you were seven, I heard that urban myth when I was around seven years old. And it never left me. And I thought while I was watching this movie that it really pays off. That that line, the way it's delivered, the times it's delivered a few times has so much impact that it's beautifully orchestrated. It's so terrifying. This is probably the epitome of home invasion. It's that violation of your safe space. The idea that certainly this is a house that's covered in Christmas decorations, they've got a Christmas tree, they've got a crackling fire, it is it is filmed genuinely in an old school sorority house. Which adds so much to the believability. This is such a human movie in terms of all the, as you, you describe the outfits, but even though they're a little outrageous, they seem very real. And the decor in the house and the, the funky wall, it's all like uh, acid color, uh, it's... Victorian, but like in those 60s and 70s colors, like mustard yellows and fuchsias, the posters on the wall, everything seems so genuine that it has a tremendous impact because of it. Yeah. For an inexpensive, low-budget movie that was shot very, very quickly, it is incredibly clean, streamlined, relentless, and well-acted, and well-thought-out. I... I think it's tremendously good. Bob? Bill? The next person who gets killed is Peter Kierdelay, who breaks into the house crazily, just as the killer is chasing Olivia Hussey down into the basement. He breaks into the basement at this inopportune time, and Jess is convinced that he must be the killer. And he is approaching her so threateningly that she bludgeons him to death with the fireplace poker that she's taken to protect herself. Off screen. I mean, we see, we see that result. But since you're bringing it up, that moment was one that was not very credible to me, and, and uh, I couldn't <laughs> suspend my disbelief. Here you have Kier Delay, uh, Peter, looking for Jess and looking in through basement windows. I kind of understood that the door is locked in the front door so he can't get in, but if that were the case... I would think he would be looking through the windows of the first floor, not through the windows of the basement. So really, that moment didn't work for me, unfortunately. A little contrived. A little contrived, correct. But he is scary. I mean, like, I found him frightening. I didn't blame her for killing him. And after listening to that audio track, no one would. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Keir Delay. I played Olivia Hussey's boyfriend, Peter. Well, there I am, looking very 60s, even though it was filmed in the 70s. And Olivia Hussey was a lovely lady. I don't remember too much about the making of this film since I was only on it for three days. It's worth taking a quick moment to talk about the final scene of the film. Jess has killed her boyfriend in error, The police arrive to find her in the basement cradling his body in her lap. And she appears dead in the initial glimpse we get of her and and Peter. Uh, They both seem to be dead, and then she comes to. 
the police and the EMTs immediately sedate her. They take her upstairs to her bed, and they give her some sort of injection that is going to knock her out for four hours. And then the next segments are like a ballet. It's so beautifully done. You want to describe it? Absolutely. The doctor who has administered the injection says that he's going to wait with her for the four hours and that her parents are already on their way. Claire's father, the first victim's father, is still there, and he realizes that his daughter must be dead, though her body has not been found. Even though the house is crawling with cops, nobody checks the trap door into the attic to find her body or the body of Ms. Mack, the house mother, or the killer who's still crouched up there hiding. Well, the the police think they've gotten the killer, so I can right. I can it's understandable that they wouldn't search the house at this point because the urgency isn't there. They found the killer. They're dealing with this uh, victim who's in shock. It's the middle of the night. Everything makes sense that they wouldn't explore the house or search the house. Right. It's a fait accompli. Claire's father begins to get up from a chair, and he collapses from shock. He faints dead away. And the doctor, who is supposed to be caring for Jess, announces that he must take this man to the hospital immediately. And he and Art Hendel both leave the house helping this poor old man, and they leave a officer stationed in front of the house. Well, it's even more subtle. It's more... And for example... and. The way I remember it, the camera's kind of moving around, so you don't necessarily see the full collapse of the father. You, it seems like the camera's hovering, and, event, and it comes back, and you see that he's collapsed, and he's being held up by the doctor and, the, and a police officer, and he's taken an off camera, and you hear them explaining to the other officers this man needs to go to the hospital right away, and you hear doors closing, and a police officer checks in on Olivia Hussey, turns off the lights, and the next thing you know, the house is empty. And it all makes sense. It all flows so naturally and so seamlessly. Our focus has never left Jessica. We're looking at her in in her bed. Right. We're extremely attuned to the fact that everyone, through circumstances that are reasonable, are leaving her. And they're leaving her alone with the killer still in the house. Well, that's that's will be revealed. All the lights are turned off again. This in a matter of minutes, every the whole situation has changed from hectic police scene to empty dark house. The, so the camera leaves Jess's bedroom and it starts going down the hallway and it seems like a recap. It, you see the bedroom where uh, Margot Kidder and Andrea Martin were with the bed sheets taken off the bed and you see there's a blood stain on the mattress. We go to Claire's room where she was suffocated. Right, you still see the suitcase by her bed and... When the viewer could say, oh, this is just a recap. It's all been concluded, and this is a recap of what's happened up to now. But the trap door to the attic opens. And you start hearing the sing-song lullaby that the deranged killer... Little Baby Bunting. ...has been singing. There is a beautiful pan shot of Ms. Mack, her face still with the gigantic hook through it hanging there in the attic, and it pans back to reveal Claire still in the rocking chair at the window. It pans out of the house to some great distance where we can see the officer standing on the front stoop, blowing into his hands because it looks like it's freezing. Hey, it's Toronto in the middle of winter. We hear the phone beginning to ring. And the credits begin rolling, and the sound of the phone gets louder and louder, And the film doesn't end. We still see the policeman pacing uselessly outside that front door, and the phone rings through to the closing shot. And it's just dread. It's just a moment of... Profound unease. And and John Saxon, who I have to say, is lovely. His commentary is... (laughs) It doesn't give much insight, but he comes across as such a well-grounded, almost spiritual person. When the last shot is revealed of the camera pulling back, showing 
this house in the middle of the cold, dark winter's night, and the policeman is smoking a cigarette, and he says, this is just existence. It somehow captures, it seems like a real moment in time in a real depressing, cold world. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Vietnam War ended a year later, and horror movies from this time period, I feel, have especially bleak endings, just bereft of hope. The things that jump to mind immediately for me are The Stepford Wives. I think of George Romero's original Living Dead trilogy. That ending is a punch in the stomach here. It's the same sort of idea, Fran, where you have a survivor who goes through so much stuff at the end in, in Night of the Living Dead, it's clear that that the hero is killed. Worse, lynched. Lynched and with a meat hook, right? Dragged into in with the rest yes. of the bodies. And in this movie, although the director argues against it, the assumption is <laughs> the killer's going to kill Jess, Olivia Hussey. She is alone without protection in the house. The director, Bob Clark, argues that it's not a foregone conclusion I think that's crazy. Just, well, he argues it in his commentary <laughs> that she, she's so courageous that you never know what's going to happen. But you do have to be awake to be able to fight off a killer, and she's been sedated. <laughs> so it's, the odds are not good. No, no. She's sedated for four hours, and her parents are not even close to arriving at the house. And there's no reason for that police officer to look into the house. He might answer the phone. It's ringing. Yeah, I, I suppose. But we don't see him do that. He doesn't react to it. No, no. I, I appreciate the fact that he has left an ambiguous ending on this film because we don't see the outcome. But I think it's crazy to think that there's any other outcome than she gets murdered in her bed. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the slashers that followed this because this really is considered to be one of the first modern slashers in the way that we currently understand and recognize slashers. This is four years before Halloween that came out in 1978, which is excellent and I love. Agreed. But before this, we had Psycho in 1960. There's Peeping Tom that came out the same year. Dementia 13, which you made me watch on TV. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola. I'm, again, a terrible brother. You were probably sick. <laughs> you were probably six years old when you saw that one. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it was on Creature Features on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I remember you telling me, oh, there's this great scene. This girl is swimming in her underwear, and as soon as she rises from this lake, she gets stabbed to death. It's amazing, and they drag her body through this uh, <laughs> wet brush. And then I watched the movie with you, and that exact thing happened. So you were warned. <laughs> yeah, I was warned. <laughs> Idiot that kept on watching. I think maybe I was hoping that your description was uh, worse than the thing actually was. It generally worked out that way. Maybe not, not in the case of Dementia 13. There, I think there are all kinds of different ways of describing what a slasher movie is. But for me, the most common thing is that there are about maybe four or five elements that always show up. The first is there was a crime in the past. The second is something happens in the present that inspires new or similar crimes to be committed. The third is there's often, but not always, a mystery. The most common mystery is the identity of the killer, and the mysteries are not always resolved. The fourth is the kills are usually fast and surprising, often done with a knife. Uh, guns are not a preferred implement. And finally, the fifth is that the victims are often whittled down to a final girl. I think this covers pretty much everything in this movie. The crime in the past is alluded to... In the babbling of the lunatic correct. killer yeah. in his obscene phone calls. It has something to do with a baby sister and sh parents being shocked. To discover the baby being missing and the older brother that was meant to be babysitting, killing and disposing of the baby to cover up a crime, possibly molestation. Yeah, nothing is explicitly said. No. But enough vague dialogue is given to make the audience reach that conclusion. And, sure. and uh, as you're talking about the baby's missing, 
I immediately think of the scene in The Other. Do you remember that movie? I don't. Describe it to me, please. And ruin this night's sleep. <laughs> it's about 12-year-old twins in 1935 in an, sort of an idyllic farm. And at some point, there's a baby missing, which reminds me of the ramblings of the deranged killer. And this one, a spoiler, major spoiler alert for the other is the baby's found inside of a barrel, drowned. It's terrifying. Yikes. <laughs> the tagline on the poster for the other is, Holland... Where is the baby? Double yikes. <laughs> I agree this movie is heralded as the template for horror movies. For example, Psycho and Dementia 13 are all, all predated. Movie buffs can always find examples of sort of slasher movies that happened before this. Why do you think this one is credited as, as being the template or the inspiration? Is it just because John Carpenter actually said this inspired Halloween? He did. He did. Halloween originally was conceived as a possible sequel to this movie before they flew off into their own ideas. But they're capturing a lot of the feeling from this. Why is this lauded so much? It's seminal. It definitely created that mold that most people mistakenly credit to Halloween. And I do think Halloween is, on some level, a lot more spare and restrained and sophisticated it's a more polished version of this. This is spare, too, and it does. it's a slow burn. I mean, you really get it to is. know these characters and the little subtle little nuances of either their stories or their atmosphere, their dorm rooms. It, it, there's, a, there's an elegance to this. There is. It, the story could easily be convoluted with as many characters as there are in it, um, but it's not. They manage it very well. It's a good balancing act. The other things, I think it's merciless in its yuletide setting and the variety of kills. It takes no prisoners, literally. Right. And that ending, that ending that leaves you with the queasiest feeling of unease, that's something you don't forget. Agreed. I loved this movie. I really found it, as I said, in so many ways, so beautifully put together, uh, executed. But... It does not have the same impact that it did when you were seven and I was 13 seeing it. It's effective and interesting and still pulled me in and still had me anxious, crazily anxious at certain scenes. But that shock from my initial viewing, I think it's something that you can't, I will never be able to recapture. And I think that's that's something that um, we all face. When we see something, especially we're talking about, we talk about horror movies. So, how do you feel about that? That there are initial impressions that often can't be replicated, replicated or surpassed. And yes, I enjoyed the movie. I watched it a few times, so I enjoyed it on lots of different levels. But boy, that initial impact! And I think that's something unique to horror movies because comedy. Like for for myself, I can see some physical comedy where someone trips or falls or does something and laugh probably as hard the second or third time, even though I know what's coming. But the shock of a sequence in a horror movie, for me, seems to be a little harder to replicate. That makes sense. Films that hinge so much on suspense and the unveiling of the plot... Once the mystery is revealed and everything becomes a known quantity, it becomes a challenge for it to scare you as much. I have to say that as a kid, I looked at Halloween as sort of a Mount Everest of horror movies. I was so scared by it, I felt compelled to watch it over and over again so that I would be less scared by it. Oh, interesting. I actually think I did that compulsively. I actually kept on renting it over and over again because I was hoping that repeated viewings would mute its effect on me. And I have to say, I wasn't very successful. (laughs) It took me me a long time. Then I think that the great joy of horror movies that no longer have that particular thrill for you, it's the joy of watching them with people who are uninitiated and haven't seen it. I have discovered great joy in sharing horror movies on unsuspecting friends 
and knowing full well what's going to happen. And their fright is something that reinvigorates my love of the film. I've created a monster. So <laughs> the, the thrill I got from subjecting you, apparently, to these horror movies, <laughs> you have become me and oh, are subjecting geez. innocence. <laughs> like I said, I, I've come to terms with the fact that basically I'm just your external hard drive. <laughs> I'm not really my own person. <laughs> I'm just a mimeographed copy. No, you're better, a newer, a newer 2.0. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> Slightly better with technology. <laughs> Two scenes that I found still very haunting, and I wanted to see what your take was the teenage girl who is murdered in the park has a distraught mother who's, who we see in the police station and later in the park while there's a search going on. Th- that actress, the sorrow she portrays and the desperation, I felt like I was watching it for the first time. It really moved me. Did that make an impact on you? It did. That side story where this mom is looking for her 13-year-old girl, it's not played for any laughs. There are plenty of other moments in the movie where a little bit of humor is injected and the characters themselves have a laugh, but this is played very seriously. She seems genuinely distraught and the discovery of the body in the park is made all the worse that we don't see it. We just see people's reaction to it. We see people, the searchers that are trying to help the police, covering their face. There is this instinctive move to like try to unsee what you've just looked at and the police try to wrestle the mom from running towards the site where everyone is screaming and reacting to the body that they've discovered and her reaction is the worst of all and it's shown so sympathetically and so and the actress does such an amazing job i think she has one of the best scenes in it and she's only in the movie for a few minutes but that scene is so moving i agree The other scene that freaked me out, there's a scene near the end of the movie where Andrea Martin and Olivia Hussey are talking to the police officer who's been trying to trace the calls. If you look in the background... There's a shadow. There's a shadow. And it's the killer inside the house. And it's so subtle. Yes. I thought it was a mistake at first. I thought maybe I did too. I did too. A gaffer or some set person was accidentally moving, or maybe we were capturing the light from outside, or maybe the fireplace reflecting off the Christmas tree. But no, it is very subtle, and you realize as they're breathing a sigh of relief because they think that they've ruled out Jess's boyfriend as the killer. The killer's in the, the house killer's right behind in the house. them. Yeah. And it is so, it's terrifying. It's so subtle. And that's where, yeah. again, your imagination fills in the blanks and the way it, and makes it even more scary than if you saw someone explicitly. It's just the nuance of it. Before we completely close this up, I do have to mention something that I found especially disturbing. And it probably is because the version that we caught on NBC <laughs> when I was seven was so heavily edited. I'm not going to deny that you were seven, but I'm going to say it's possible we saw a repeat of it. And hopefully I didn't subject you as a seven-year-old to this, but it's possible. NBC refused (laughs) to re-air this movie again because... Really? Because uh, Ted Bundy was caught and his sorority house murders made so many headlines, they thought it was unethical to air this film again. All right, so... (laughs) I was seven. You were seven. (laughs) In the first five minutes of the movie, the very first obscene phone call that they receive is incredibly sexually explicit. It is so sexually explicit that upon reviewing the movie back in 2001, it kind of ruined the movie for me. I found it so repulsive disgusting and rapacious. I think I mentioned to this to you offline, but we have sort of an insane culture as far as horror movies go. Violence against women is kind of expected and routinely tolerated and is just a trope of the genre. But 
when you introduce the element of sexual assault or rape, it goes too far. And that is a crazy double standard that I don't understand, and I have to admit that I've got a conflict within myself that, yeah, this is, this is an equation that doesn't make a lot of sense. In any case, we should warn our listeners who might be encouraged to watch this movie to be prepared for that first obscene phone call. The subsequent obscene phone calls are honestly nowhere near as bad. The insane babbling about little baby bunting and Agnes and Billy, they're scary and frightening, but the film starts off with a very definite and explicit threat of rape that turns into a promise of murder, which he carries out. Can you imagine what that... I mean, if it's shocking now, in 1974, what do you think audiences... Uh, felt when they saw when they heard the language the 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 killer used on those calls it must have been like nothing that anyone had ever heard before honestly i can't imagine it i think there were these are different ways that, that the director shows you that nothing is off limits it's true it's true language the murder of the 13 year old girl i think people probably assumed uh, at that time, you can't, you're not going to kill a 13-year-old, but off-screen they do. It also ramps up the tension for our final act where we realize that none of the girls that we've met are safe, including our final girl. Should we talk a little bit about Bob Clark? Of course, absolutely. So for the, our listeners, not only did he do a seminal Christmas horror movie, he directed a seminal Christmas movie, period, with a Christmas story. We have him to blame. <laughs> As well as Porky's. Ugh, the Porky's franchise. I hated those films. I have to, t- uh, I don't know if this is something I feel comfortable you keeping in, but I, one of the reasons I didn't mind the, the Porky's movie, uh, movies, um, even though there's something very um, sleazy. sleazy about them, and also foreign. I don't think I realize it's because it's Canadian that there's something off about it. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you're actually considering having me edit this this part out? Why? You don't uh, want to be. I don't want my Canadian Canadians? fan club to to to, to revolt. <laughs> there are there are dues paying members of my fan club in Canada. Uh, I don't want to offend. But I remember in high school, uh, some of my friends who had seen Porky's saying that they didn't like it because there was more male nudity than female nudity. And for obvious reasons, uh, for, our view, for our listeners, since we're two gay brothers, as a high school kid, I found that intriguing <laughs> as opposed to off-putting. You've hit on something very important, which is I tried to rent as many movies as possible that might contain male nudity, and the most disappointing thing about the Porky's franchise is that everybody, male and female, are hideous. <laughs> That's true. It, it, everyone is so ugly. Not because they're Canadian. Just <laughs> now, I, all right, fine, make that <laughs> distinction, not because they're Canadian. <laughs> the Porky's franchise, since it's so old, and a lot of listeners probably don't know this, it's it was... a raunchy teen gross-out sex comedies about losing virginity and about losing uh, virginity like, and, yeah. and peeping on girls and going to whorehouses and strip joints it was really lowbrow and really vulgar and it was probably aimed at an audience that thought that animal house was too elitist because it took place on a university campus or ivy league exactly and but but Kim Cattrall is attractive and is in the original Porky's as a gym teacher. This is true. Um, <laughs> Who loves being in a room full of dirty jockstraps? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> good lord! Please don't remind me of these terrible story elements. That is an irredeemable <laughs> movie franchise. Uh, you might have mentioned that Bob Clark directed Murder by Decree. 1979, uh, a really Tony Sherlock Holmes story that melded Holmes with Jack the Ripper. It's a really interesting movie that kind of haunted me. A million times better than the Johnny Depp movie From Hell, which covers some of the same ground uh, many years later. He did several movies that haunted me. He, in addition to Black Christmas, he directed a movie called Dead of Night. 
Vietnam soldier who's some, who's been killed somehow shows up at his parents' house basically as a zombie. Uh, do you remember this? Never saw it. But he seems slightly vampiric. He's stealing blood from people. Correct. And it reminds me a little bit of that other Romero vampire movie that I'd never heard of that you had mentioned to me recently. Is it called M- Martin? Martin, exactly. I had never heard of these movies before, either Dead of Night or Martin. But they cover s- some similar territory there. Yep. And the similar territory, also more currently covered by Martin, is the vampire movie we saw a month or two ago together. The Transfiguration. Yes. Of which the less said, <laughs> the better. <laughs> One last movie that I'll mention that Bob Clark directed was a horror movie from 1972 called Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. Oh my goodness, I forgot he directed that. That also haunted me. He's, I think as a director, he's directed more movies that have etched themselves in my brain than any other director. (laughs) (laughs) Also because he directed Rhinestone and that had such a big impact on my life, just joking. (laughs) <laughs> the Dolly Parton Sylvester Stallone collaboration, Rhinestone. He directed lots of flops. They definitely weirdly pulled the chair out for him on big projects again and again, and he lost money over and over and finally was directing some pretty shabby direct to video TV garbage uh, at the end of his career. But early on, he did several movies of note. Well, and children shouldn't play with dead things. What uh, the image that comes to mind, and I think this is accurate, is there's a despicable character, male character, who as these zombies are coming after them, he basically throws a young woman to them to buy a few seconds of precious life for himself. himself. They're both doomed. They're on an island that's covered with resuscitated zombies. All the characters that have ridden to this island with him have been killed one by one, and finally he's left with the final girl, and he tosses her. Uh, Not only does the girl seem surprised, but the zombies turn and stare and gape at him as well in shock (laughs) that he's giving her up. And I still have that. I still remember that shock, and so that's just another Bob Clark moment. He is eaten and ripped apart just a few seconds later. Uh, his very selfish act has only bought him seconds. Yep, that's something that ruined me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is a long list. This is why we call it Soma Free Psychoplasmatics. <laughs> it's interesting us moving from the other Canadian horror film by Cronenberg where we have all that mommy horror the mother horror, the reproductive horror. Body horror. Body horror. But it's also very squarely female-focused. And here we have women in more familiar territory as our main victims of a killer. In The Brood, the woman's the bad guy. And here it's a male bad guy. But I, I like the fact that you mentioned that it doesn't come from any sort of moral stance. It's nope. not the territory that we went to in the 80s where it's the sexual transgressors, it's the characters who drink and smoke and are slutty who are being punished, which seems like some weird pandering move to the audience saying, it's okay, it's okay, we're only killing the women who deserve to die. And I think as a result, because here everyone is fair game, it's such a bleaker world. It is. Which makes it more effective as a horror movie in terms of creating a sense of dread and anxiety and, and horror. Hey, did you see Krampus? Recent Christmas horror movie? No, I haven't seen it yet. I'll send you a copy. Okay. All right, I think that's it for this installment of The Brothers Grimmer. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. And please listen to some of the other shows in our Piwacket family of podcasts. Be sure to try Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered with Molly and Frank. Excellent. The Brothers Grimmer is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network, all rights reserved. Our music is by Charlie Duggan, age eight. Charlie will not be permitted to listen to this podcast until he is 18 years old.
feel like there's more stuff I could talk about, but it's already getting too long. I think you're right. This is the other thing I was going to mention is other Christmas-based horror movies. There was a Tales from the Crypt movie, a British anthology horror movie from 1972 with Joan Collins. They had a short vignette in that movie called "And All Through the Night," where Joan Collins murders her husband. And there's an escape lunatic wearing a Santa Claus costume, and he is outside her house, and she's trying to get rid of her husband's body to cover up the evidence, but she can't leave the house because the killer is outside. <laughs> How inconvenient. How incredibly inconvenient. At some late moment in the story, Joan Collins' little daughter, thinking that it's Santa Claus, lets him in, and he strangles Joan Collins to death. And I remember being very frightened by this, HBO eventually, when they did a Tales from the Crypt cable TV series, they devoted one episode to a high-budget remake of this same story directed by Robert Zemeckis. Oh, wow. And? Was it good? Well, the actress that they got for the Joan Collins role, her name is Mary Ellen Trainer. She is a character actress who you would recognize from playing moms in a million TV sitcoms didn't really have any of the star power punch of Joan Collins. You kind of you kind of want to see Joan Collins get strangled by a guy in a Santa Claus costume. But the guy who played the escape lunatic in the Zemeckis version was Larry Drake, who was very famous for playing the mentally retarded LA Law paralegal in LA Law and also the mafioso heavy in Dark Man, the Liam Neeson Sam Raimi movie. Well, L.A. Law inspired me to become a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Did it really? (laughs) (laughs) Because I wanted to be just like Susan Day. (laughs) Well, uh, didn't we all? (laughs) And uh, and, uh, I hated Darkman. I hated Darkman. It was so campy and over-the-top and so blue-screeny. It was kind of what I thought Brian De Palma would have done if he had had, like, a superhero movie. It was kind of demented. It was not what I expected, but... I think looking back on it, I kind of liked it. Maybe we should revisit it. Nah, it's not really a horror movie, though. No, it's true. That's true. All right, Bert. I think this was a good one. I think so, too. (laughs) There was a lot to talk about. (laughs) Um, Oh, I'm going to keep it running. Okay. Because I'm going to ask Steve. Steven might be asleep at this point. I'm going to ask him if he wants to come in and talk. Wake him up! (laughs) Let me see if he's up. Hold on. Okay. Bert. Yeah. Much like Jess in the final scene of Black Christmas, <laughs> Stephen is he's fully unconscious. sedated. No, he's sedated. He actually took something to go oh. to sleep. He, he takes something every night. And what does he I'm take? going to kill him. What does he take? <laughs> Do you have a glass <laughs> unicorn handy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that glass unicorn was not just a figurine. It was like a bookend or something. It was something yeah. gigantic. Um. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember the name of his sleep medication. It works like a charm, though. He's, he's dead to the world in 15 minutes. Uh, oh, I'm starving because I haven't had dinner, so okay. I'm going to maybe um, try to whip something up. I got some pizza on my way home. Oh, um, lucky you. Yeah. Lucky you. Okay, now all we need to do is stop. Okay. And so we're going to uh, go up to the stop button. Yeah. 